This episode of Game Master's Journey is brought to you by my patrons, readers, and listeners. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, visit LexStarWalker.com slash support. Starwalker Studios presents Game Master's Journey, your multidimensional RPG podcast. Hello, fellow gamer. Welcome to episode 296 of Game Master's Journey. I'm your host, Lex Starwalker. On this show, we discuss the craft and the art of game mastering. I've been running RPGs for over 30 years now, and I produce this show in the hopes that you can benefit from my experience, my triumphs, and my mistakes. Today, I return to my discussion of Vampire the Masquerade for the third in this series of episodes on uh, one of my favorite games. And uh, yeah, we'll talk more about Vampire and see how far we can get in the in the overview of this game today. But before we get into that, I want to uh, remind you, as I mentioned in the last episode, that we are quickly approaching episode 300. And I thought it would be cool for the 300th episode of the show to do something special uh, for the show and and for you all. And so it would be great uh, to hear from as many listeners as possible to uh, help me in this celebration of our 300th episode. So I'd really appreciate it if you'd uh, call my voicemail and leave a message, or you can send me an audio file by email, or uh, you can just email me what whatever you have to say if you don't want to hear your voice on the show. As far as the kind of stuff I'm, I'm looking for, anything really, if you just want to say hi, that's great. But what would also be really cool is if uh, there's anything that you've learned from the show or any way that that the show's helped you as a GM over the years, I would love to hear about that. Or if you have a question you'd like me to answer or a suggestion for a topic for a future episode of the show, that would be awesome too. Or if you have a war story from your RPG days, whether as a player or a GM, that would be really fun too. So uh, you can call my voicemail at 951-GMJ-LEX-1. That's 951-465-5391. Or you can email me at gamemastersjourney at gmail.com. And if you didn't catch that or you're on the road or something, can't write it down, um, you can find that contact information in the show notes for this or any of the episodes at lexstarwalker.com slash GM. Jay. So thank you in advance to everyone who participates in this and uh, sends me some kind of feedback that uh, I can use for the 300th episode. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, it'll it'll be a lot of fun. And it, it's hard for me to believe that uh, pretty soon I will have made 300 episodes of the show. That seems like a lot. But uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun, and, and hopefully we can we can keep this train going. So uh, yeah, that's it as far as uh, announcements or anything like that. So uh, without further ado, let's uh, move on to our main topic today and talk some more about Vampire the Masquerade.
All right. So today I'm going to continue my discussion of Vampire the Masquerade, just kind of giving you an overview of the game. This is the third part in this series that began with uh, episode 294 and then 295 was the second part. And also episode 293 was an overview of the storyteller system in general. So if you're new to the show and, and getting caught up, and if you're new to Vampire and the Storyteller system, you probably want to go back and start with episode 293. So today we're going to pick up where we left off. And the next uh, few topics I want to discuss all interact with one another. And that is uh, the, or are, I guess I should say, the virtues of Vampire, as well as humanity and the special mental states of, of vampires, the frenzy and the Rorschach. So actually, I think um, I'm already diverging from what I have in my notes because as I get ready to do this, I think that the best place to start here, kind of to lay the, the groundwork for the rest of our discussion, is talking about humanity. So as I talked about a bit in the last episode, one of the things I really love about these games from White Wolf is that every one of them gives your player character an internal conflict to feel your role-playing. So even on the first session of your Chronicle, the first time you ever play your character, well, actually, it'll be the second time because you play your character a little bit in a prelude, but the first time you play your character with the rest of the group, you already know your character pretty well from your demeanor and your nature, which, which we discussed in previous episodes so you know your character uh, w- with an intimacy that that you often don't in other role-playing games before you've played for a while. And you also have some kind of internal conflict built into that character to role-play right from the beginning. And in Vampire, that conflict is the conflict between your humanity and the beast. And and we talked a bit about the beast last time. And the beast is simply just this idea of you you now as a vampire have this hunger for human blood within you that that must be appeased. And this is uh something that that is called the beast in the game, which is kind of your the vampire part of you, this this kind of like like your vampire id that uh, in times of stress or hunger or injury or things like that can rise up. And if you are not able to control it, it will take you over for a while. And during that time, you will be not behaving like a higher thinking sentient being, but behaving more like a ravenous animal that has no concept for morality or ethics or worrying about the masquerade or, or any of those things. So that's the one side of the conflict is the beast within you. The other side is your humanity or what's left of it. Now, you know, once you're turned into a vampire, obviously you're not technically human anymore, but just the experience of becoming a vampire, it doesn't just overnight change who you are. You know, once you've been turned into a vampire, you're still the same person that you were before. It doesn't change your personality. It doesn't change 
your ideas of right and wrong and, and all those things. So night one of your new existence as, as a vampire, you're, you know, psychologically pretty much the same person you were the day before. Um, nothing's really changed there. But as you continue to exist as a vampire and you're forced to feed on humans to to keep going, there is a chance of losing touch with with that human side of you, becoming more and more monstrous, more and more um, evil, I guess you could say. And, and this would be, you know, losing your humanity and, and becoming or coming more and more uh, over or under the sway of the beast. And, and as I mentioned last time, a, a choice you get to make as a, as a player in this game with your character is how much are you going to try to hold on to your humanity? How much are you going to try to resist the urges of the beast versus giving into them? So, you know, if you think about some popular vampire stories, something that, that jumps to my mind right away is uh, Interview with the Vampire. So so this could be either the book by Anne Rice or the movie that, that was made based on the book. So if you've read the book or, or seen the movie, which I imagine most of you probably have, uh, especially if you're at all interested in vampires, then, you know, the main character of that story, uh, Louis, is a vampire who is very much trying to hold on to his humanity, right? He, he doesn't want to feed on people. He doesn't want to kill people. He, he still wants to be human, and he doesn't want to lose that. On the other hand, another character in that story, uh, Claudia, who is the uh, young girl that, that uh, they make into a vampire, she is very much a vampire who just gives in to the beast. She very much embraces her new existence, uh, she doesn't care about morality. She has no value for human life. She doesn't think anything about killing someone, etc. Another great story to, to see this, this contrast between different types of vampires is True Blood. Now, I, I didn't read the books, uh, but I, I quite enjoyed the TV show, True Blood. And in that show, again, we have a character, uh, William Compton, who at least in the beginning of the series, is very much trying to hold on to his humanity and is very resistant to the beast and, and not wanting to become a monster. And at the same time, we see other vampires in that show who have very much embraced their monstrous nature and are not um, human in the way they think of things at all anymore. And they have no value for human life. And, and then you have vampires that, that are somewhere in between, somewhere on that spectrum. So this is a pretty common theme and idea in vampire stories. So it's really cool that they decided to really draw on this for this game to give you this internal conflict to role play in your character. But it also has external manifestations as well. And it also has uh, mechanical reflections in the game, which is super cool. So the first aspect of this in the game is an actual trait on your character sheet called humanity. And like the willpower trait, this is a trait that goes from 1 to 10. And your rating in humanity is a reflection of how human you still are. And it, it's mostly a thing of 
your psychology, but it can also be a physical thing as well, especially depending on your clan. So for instance, if you remember from our discussion of the clans last time, the Gangrel clan, every five times a frenzy, they get an animal feature. So as they frenzy more and more, as they uh, fail or choose not to resist the beast more and more often, uh, they become more bestial in appearance. But this is something that maybe to a lesser degree, but, but is still somewhat relevant to all vampires, that as they lose their humanity, they look less and less human. They look more and more like the stereotypical idea of a vampire. So, so they look more and more pale, etc. So as I said, humanity goes from a rating of 1 to 10. And the higher your humanity trait is, the more human you are. And this ties directly into your morality. So it's a really clever system. It's a really clever trait. And I really like the way they've implemented this. So one thing to point out here is this humanity rating is something that that would vary even within humans. So it's a measure of how moral you are or how strict your morality is. What, What kind of things will you allow yourself to do versus not? Kind of where do you draw the line on your own personal code as far as what you will do or what you won't. And they do a great job of outlining this. So it's pretty easy to understand and it's pretty easy to figure out when someone is violating their humanity and when they're not. But but I want to point out, and this will be uh, more, more apparent to you as I go through the hierarchy of sins, but even a, an actual human will not necessarily have a humanity of 10. In fact, most humans probably don't have a humanity of 10, which you'll see when when we go through this some more. But as a vampire, generally speaking, the higher your humanity, the more human you look, the easier it is for you to pass as a human uh, without going to a lot of effort. And the less your humanity, the more bestial you look or the more inhuman or the more like a stereotypical vampire that you look and and the more difficult it is for you to disguise the fact that you are not in fact human. So as I said, it, it goes from one to 10, the higher your humanity, the more human you are. Not only does it affect your appearance and your ability to pass as human, It also affects you during the day. So vampires have to sleep during the day and they are somewhat vulnerable during that time. And your humanity impacts how easy or how difficult it is for you to wake up during the day and and be able to function. So, you know, you might be sleeping during the day and maybe some human vampire hunters come in to try to kill you are you going to notice they're there? Are you going to be able to wake up? Are you going to be able to respond and defend yourself? And and that all has to do with humanity. So mechanically, the way this, this is reflected is during the daytime, any roll that you make, you can never roll more dice in your dice pool than what your humanity is. So, you know, if you have a humanity of seven, 
you can roll up to seven dice in, in any dice pool, which would include rolling dice to be able to wake up if the hunters are there, rolling dice to fight them or, or whatever you might want to do. So if you have a seven humanity, you know, especially as a beginning character, you know, seven dice, that's a good sized dice pool. You're probably not going to have many, if any, rolls that you would make as a beginning character where you would have more dice than that anyway. So with a seven humanity, you might be able to function pretty much as well during the day as, as you could at night. But if you have like a four or a three humanity, you can see how you would be very limited in the day. You know, you might have dice pools of six, seven, eight, nine, even 10 dice. But uh, during the day, if you've only got a three humanity, you can never roll more than three dice for, for anything, uh, which is going to make it more difficult to do pretty much anything during the day. Another thing that humanity affects is torpor. So I explained last week that, that torpor is kind of like a vampire coma, or it's like how dragons will, will sleep for a long time. So vampires, when they go into torpor, they can sleep for months, years, decades, centuries, millennia. Um, they can sleep for a really long time. Sometimes a vampire will choose to go into torpor for some reason, like they're just sick of being a vampire, or they're just sick of their life or whatever. But sometimes a vampire can be put into torpor involuntarily, especially like if they take a lot of damage or something like that. And uh, your humanity rating affects when you go into to torpor, how long you remain in torpor. So even when you go into torpor voluntarily, you're not completely in control of when you will wake up. And the lower your humanity, the longer it will be before you can start making rolls to wake up. So, you know, high humanity, you can go into torpor for a short period of time and wake up and be fine. But once your humanity gets lower, if you do go into torpor for whatever reason, you're going to be out for a long time. So where the rubber hits the road, as they say with humanity, is really the hierarchy of sins. And so this is really what tells you, what does a 10 humanity mean? What does a 9 humanity mean? What does an 8 humanity mean? And so on. So the way this works is for each level of humanity, they give a sin or wrongdoing. And that is the minimum thing you could do that would require you to make a roll to see if you are going to lose your humanity. So now, you know, to, to further explain this, we need to pull in the virtues a little bit. So some other traits you have on your character other than humanity as a vampire are you have three virtues, conscience, self-control, and courage. And conscience is the one that ties directly into humanity. And the virtues are like a lot of the other traits in the game. They go from one to five. So here's the idea. Your humanity, your number from one to 10, that's your humanity rating, tells you kind of where you're at as far as um, what kind of wrongdoing can you do and not feel bad about it. So... For instance, with a 10 humanity, any kind of accidental wrongdoing, you're going to have to make a roll to see if you feel bad about it. So that, that could be any, anything, you know, um, and it can be accidental. So accidentally lying to someone or accidentally cutting someone off in traffic or whatever. So with a 10 humanity, just basically anything that could be 
conceived of you just did something wrong, even if it was an accident, you make a roll. And the roll you make for that is your conscience. You roll your conscience virtue. So again, that'll go from one to five. So you'll have anywhere from one to five dice to roll for this. And the way this works is, you know, let's say you have a 10 humanity and you accidentally lie to someone, or maybe you intentionally lie to someone. So you have violated your humanity at that point. You've done something that you consider wrong. So you roll conscience. And this role is to see, do you feel bad about what you just did? Do you regret what you just did? Do you have remorse for what you just did? So you roll conscience. If you succeed at that conscience role, that means that you feel bad. So let's say you lied to someone. You feel bad that you just lied to that person and you're like, man, I feel really bad I did that. I'm not going to do that again. And that's the end of it. However, if you fail that conscience roll, that means that you don't feel bad about that thing you just did. So you lie to this person and you don't feel bad about it. And you then lose a point of humanity. So your humanity goes from 10 to 9. And that is another really cool thing about the humanity trait and about these games in general is they all have some form of degeneration. So you think of a game like Dungeons and Dragons, and for the most part in Dungeons and Dragons, unless like, I don't know, you get hit with some kind of negative energy or some kind of spell or something like that. For the most part in the game of Dungeons and Dragons, as you play your character, your character continually gets more powerful, right? You gain levels, you uh, get more powerful magic items, etc. And yeah, you know, you could lose a magic item or someone could steal it from you or destroy it or something like that. Earlier ve- versions of the game had where you could lose levels. In 5th edition, there, there's not really a mechanic where you lose levels. But in general, in D&D and in a lot of games, as you play your character, your character just gets more and more powerful. They learn more things. They just get better and better, right? Vampire and these other games by White Wolf are different in that, yes, as you play your character more, you will gain XP and your character will get more powerful and be able to do more things. However, there's also this potential for degeneration, which is your character getting worse. So with Vampire, that's humanity. So you can actually lose your humanity. You can get it back. It's not easy, and it's a a prolonged process to get it back. (laughs) You can lose it a lot more quickly than you can get it back. But you can lose humanity. And if your humanity ever falls all the way to zero, you lose control of your character. You lose your character. Because when your humanity becomes zero, you are consumed by the beast And you basically just become a ravenous animal that wants nothing but human blood. And the other vampires will put you down because you will be a constant threat to the masquerade because you're not going to care about not revealing yourself to humans because you're an unthinking animal now. So once your humanity falls to zero, you lose your character. The storyteller gets your character and all the other vampires in the city are going to be hunting you down to kill you. So it'll be the end of your character. So obviously that's something to be avoided. So you have this constant threat in this game of, yeah, your character gains XP, yeah, you get more powerful and all these things, but if you're not careful and you lose too much of your humanity, you lose your character. 
All right, so let's go through the the hierarchy sins, and and as I go through this, I think this will all make more sense. So as I said, with a humanity of 10, the minimum wrongdoing for a humanity role is accidental wrongdoing. With a humanity 9, the minimum wrongdoing for a humanity role is purposeful wrongdoing. So with a humanity of 10, if you do anything wrong, even by accident, you didn't mean to do it, you have to roll to see if you lose humanity. With a humanity nine, if it was an accident, you don't have to roll. You know, so if you said something to someone that turned out not to be true, but you thought it was true when you said it to them, so you accidentally lied to them, you wouldn't have to roll for that with a nine humanity. Um, with a 10 humanity, you would. And remember, every time you have to make a roll for humanity, every time you have to roll your conscience, there's a chance of losing humanity. If you fail that role, you lose a point of humanity. With an eight humanity, the minimum wrongdoing for a role is purposefully inflicting injury. So with an eight humanity, you lie to someone, you don't have to roll. Um, whether it's accidental or purposeful, doesn't matter. Anything less than intentionally hurting someone, you don't have to roll. But with an eight Humanity, if you purposefully inflict injury on someone, you have to make a roll to see if you lose humanity. With a humanity of seven, the minimum wrongdoing for a roll is theft and robbery. So, you know, you steal from someone, you have to make a roll with humanity seven or higher. With humanity six, the minimum wrongdoing is negligent killing, which means killing someone like you didn't set out to kill them, but it just kind of happened, but you were responsible for it. So if you if you do that with a six humanity, you have to roll. But with a six humanity, you no longer have to roll for theft and robbery or purposefully inflicting injury or purposeful wrongdoing or accidental wrongdoing. With a five humanity, the minimum wrongdoing for a humanity roll is wanton destruction. So just going out and destroying things. Level four minimum wrongdoing is murder in the heat of passion. So that's killing someone when you're in a rage, right? It's it's not premeditated. You didn't set out to kill this person, but they they made you really mad or you got into a fight with them and you ended up killing them. So that's for humanity. Three humanity, minimum wrongdoing for a role is sadism and perversion. Two humanity, minimum wrongdoing for a humanity role is premeditated murder. And then one humanity, minimum wrongdoing for humanity role is the most heinous and demented acts. So it'd be nice uh, if you do have a book or whatever, it's a little easier to grok this probably if you can look at it and, and read it. But uh, I, I think you can see how, how well designed this is. And the thing that I love about it is in a way you don't really have to worry about it. You know, you're going to start out with a certain humanity just based on the mechanics of how you build your character. But over time, your humanity will come to reflect the way you play your character. Um, and if you consistently play your character a certain way, um, eventually your humanity will reflect that and, and it'll probably stay the same. So let me illustrate this. So let's say... I'm playing a vampire and let's say my character my character will steal. He doesn't care about that. If he kills someone by accident, you know, oops, didn't mean to do that. Destruction of property, he doesn't care about that. 
Murder in the heat of passion doesn't care about that, you know, doesn't care about that. So let's say where my character draws, draws a line is sadism and perversion, right? So, you know, he doesn't see murder in the heat of passion as wrong or or if it is wrong, he just doesn't care. But he sees today's sadism and perversion as wrong and he sees premeditated murder as wrong, right? So that lines up with a humanity of three. So the minimum wrongdoing for a humanity of three is sadism and perversion. So if I consistently play my character that way, like that's where he draws a line, then even if I start out with, say, a seven humanity, as I play the character, he's going to be losing humanity because the, the minimum wrongdoing with a seven humanity is theft and robbery, and my character's fine stealing from people. So every time I steal something, I'm going to have to make a conscious roll to see if I feel bad about it. Eventually, I'm going to fail that roll, and then my humanity will drop to six, which the minimum wrongdoing for six is negligent killing. Well, my character doesn't care about that either. So every time I negligently kill someone, I'll have to make that conscious roll. Eventually, I'll fail, and my humanity will drop to five. Minimum wrongdoing there is wanton destruction. Well, my character doesn't care about that either. So every time he goes out wantonly destroying things, he's going to have to roll conscience. Eventually, he's going to fail that roll. And then his humanity will drop to four, which is murder in the heat of passion. Well, <laughs> my character's a real bastard. He doesn't care about that either. So he's going to be murdering people in the heat of passion sometimes. And every time he does, he's going to have to roll conscience. And eventually, he's going to fail that roll. And then his humanity will drop from four to three. Now, minimum wrongdoing for a humanity role with a three is sadism and perversion. And my character does see that as wrong. That's where he draws a line. So he may never do that, in which case he'll never, you know, once he gets to humanity three, he's never going to have to roll conscience because he no longer has to roll for things like murder in the heat of passion or negligent killing or theft and robbery anymore. Um, he only needs to roll when he does sadism or perversion or premeditated murder or something even worse than that. So he may just stay at three forever. Or maybe once in a blue moon, he does sadism and perversion for some reason, and then he has to roll. And, uh, you know, maybe he doesn't do it that often and he only rolls well, and so it stays at three. Or maybe, you know, one time he does roll badly and it drops to two. But uh, now the minimum is premeditated murder. So, so you see, right? You, you know, if you establish your characters like this is what my character will do, this is what my character won't do, your humanity will come to reflect that. The problem here is, is it's not always under your control because we have the frenzy, which we talked about last week, which is where your character loses control to the beast. So, as I said, we, we have three virtues in this game, conscience, self-control, and courage. So, conscience is what you roll anytime you do something that violates your humanity to see if you feel bad about it or not, to see if you lose humanity or not. So, if you break your code, if you do something that violates your humanity, your humanity rating, then you roll conscience. If you succeed at that roll, you feel bad about what you just did, and your humanity stays the same. If you fail at that role, you don't feel bad about what you did and you lose a point of humanity. And oh, I forgot to mention, you also, when you lose a point of humanity, you also lose a point 
from one of your virtues. You get to pick which one. If you lose a point from conscience, self-control, or courage, you get to pick. So not only does your humanity go down through the game, but your virtues do too. So frenzy, okay? Frenzy relies on uh, or interacts with the the second virtue, which is self-control. So anytime you're in a situation where the storyteller thinks you might frenzy, you roll self-control to see if you can resist it or not. So if you're really hungry or someone really pisses you off or really embarrasses you or you are really injured, um, there are various things that, that could bring about a frenzy. Anytime you're in a situation like that, the storyteller has you roll self-control. If you fail that roll, you frenzy. And when you're in a frenzy, you lose control of your character to the beast or the storyteller. And during those times when you're frenzied, if you have a higher humanity, chances are really good you are going to do things that violate that humanity, which means you're now going to have to roll conscience to see if you lose humanity or not. So, you know, let's say I consistently play my character where I draw the line at, uh, let's say for this illustration, I my character just feels that any kind of killing is wrong. Killing a human, killing another vampire is wrong. So humanity six, the minimum wrongdoing for a humanity role at humanity six is neg- negligent killing. So let's say, you know, I've consistently played my character this way. So maybe he started out with humanity seven or eight, but it's gone down to six because he's done some thieving and whatnot. So it's at a six. I frenzy and during the frenzy, I kill someone. Well, that violates my code. Uh, my minimum wrongdoing at a humanity six is negligent killing. So any kind of killing I do, any kind of murder, whether it was in the heat of passion, whether it was premeditated or whether it was an accident, it doesn't matter. If my character kills someone, I have to roll for humanity. So my character frenzies, you know, he fails his self-control role. He goes into a frenzy during the frenzy, at which point I am not in control of my character. The storyteller is, the beast is. During that frenzy, my character kills someone. I now have to roll conscience. Let's say I fail that roll. Well, now my humanity drops from six to five. Not because I, Lex, wanted to do that, right? I, I didn't want to kill anyone. The, the storyteller was in control of my character. My character was frenzied. So you can see how you can lose humanity even when you don't want to or even when you don't intend to. So yeah, conscience you use when you violate your humanity to see if you feel bad or not, to see if you lose humanity or not. Self-control you use to resist a frenzy, um, which by the way, you can choose not to resist a frenzy. So you feel the beast rising within you and storyteller says, roll self-control to resist frenzy. You can say, man, I'm going to frenzy. You can do that. The third virtue, courage, you use to resist what's called the Roshek. I don't know if it's actually a German word or if they made that word up, but it looks like a German word. But uh, so I don't know if I'm saying that right because it's got an umlaut in it and I struggle with those. So uh, apologies to any German listeners if I'm butchering that word. So what the Roshek is, is basically an overpowering fear. So there are a couple things that vampires are afraid of, namely sunlight and fire. 
So anytime as a vampire that you encounter sunlight or fire, you have to fight this overwhelming fear, which again is the beast within you because of that. And you roll courage to resist that. So let's say you're you're out in the woods and, and you come into a clearing and there's a huge bonfire, you would have to make a courage roll. If you fail that roll, uh, you go into a state called the Rothschild. It, it's similar to a frenzy in that you lose control of your character for a while, but where in a frenzy, you are in this hyper-violent state where you are trying to fill up with blood and and you know fight anything that's around you. With the Roshek, it's like the fight or flight, right? The the frenzy is the fight and Roshek is the flight. So if you fail a courage check to avoid the Roshek, when you go into the Roshek, you are just terrified of this bonfire and you run away from it or you get away from it however you can. And you're not in control. The, the storyteller is in control. So that is another time when you could possibly violate your humanity. Again, let's say you have a humanity of six where any kind of killing, negligent or otherwise, violates your humanity. You're around some fire or maybe some sunlight and you roll courage to avoid the Roshek and you fail that roll. You go into Roshek and you go to flee and someone's in your way. You might just kill that person to get away from the fire. Now you violated your humanity and now you need to roll conscience to see if you lose humanity or not. So it, it's a really cool way that they did this. I love the, the way the humanity is set up where, you know, if you consistently play your character with a certain morality, over time, your humanity will come to reflect that. But it's also not completely under your control. If you do fall to frenzy and or the Roshek, um, you may end up doing something that violates your humanity and, and you may lose some humanity. But you also see how as your humanity gets lower and lower, you have to do more and more heinous things to risk losing it. So, you know, once you get to down to a humanity of four or lower, like you kind of have to either be horrible at avoiding frenzy and whatnot, or you're just, your character's like a real bastard. You know, you, you really have to be evil to uh, to keep going down once your humanity gets to to four or three or lower, so it's it's really cool. And then yeah, once your humanity gets to zero, your character completely falls under the sway of the beast, and you no longer have your higher mental functions, and you're you're just a raving animal seeking blood and carnage. And the other vampires will band together to to bring you down before you break the the masquerade irreparably and uh, bring the existence of vampires to the awareness of humans. All right, so the next thing I wanted to go over today as far as vampire is the backgrounds trait. Now, this is a trait that uh, is common to all the games. All the games have backgrounds. A lot of these backgrounds are in all the games, and then each game has has some backgrounds that are just specific to that game. Backgrounds are really cool. They allow your character to have some things that, you know, you just wouldn't have in a lot of other games or or it would just be entirely a role-playing thing, something that you would um, gain through play. But this lets you start out with some of these things and uh, 
Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun. It's really cool. So I, I talked a little bit about backgrounds before, but I thought it would probably make a lot more sense if I just went over the backgrounds that are in the game for Vampire. So I'll try to go through these quickly. Most of them are pretty straightforward. So the first background is allies, and allies are mortals who help you and support you. They could be family, friends, an organization you're friendly with, things like that. These are people who, you know, they have their own lives. They're, they're not at your beck and call, but they, you know, they may have some influence in the community. They may have access to contacts or resources, all of which influence contacts and resources or other backgrounds you can get. And ultimately, they are a human whom you've befriended and who protects or aids you out of love or common interest. So backgrounds like most traits in this game go from one to five. And for each point you put in your background of ally, you get an ally. So a one is one ally, two is two allies, three is three allies, and so on. It also affects how influential they are. So with a one, you have one ally of moderate influence and power. A two is two allies of moderate power. Three is three allies, and one of them is quite influential. Four is four allies, and one of them is very influential. And then five is five allies. One of them is extremely influential. Our next background is contacts. Contacts are people that that you can get information from, and they're people that you can really count on to provide you with accurate information. And just like the the allies, the, the number or your rating in contacts is how many contacts you have, one to five. Allies and contacts are, are kind of similar, but uh, you know, allies are more just humans that, that will help you out, where contacts tend to be more sources of information. So you might have a contact in the police or in the government or whatever. The next background is fame, which is simply you know being famous. So with a one, you're known to a select subculture. So maybe, you know, like if you were famous in esports or something, that, that could be a one, you know? So, so it's like, yeah, someone who's in the esports will know who you are, but most people won't. A two is your face is recognized by a majority of the populace, a local ce- celebrity. Uh, three, you're fairly famous and your name and face are known by many. Four, you're quite renowned. Everybody knows something about you. And five, you're a nationally famous individual. The next background is one that is specific to vampires, so you won't see this in the other games, which is generation. So we talked about generation last week. And so, as I said, usually a beginning character is 13th generation. But if you want to be lower generation than that, um, this is the background for you if you want to be a little more powerful. So each of these uh, reduces your generation by one. So with a generation of one, you're 12th generation, all the way down to a generation of five, in which case you would be eighth generation. So for the most part, the lowest generation a beginning character can be is eight. There is uh, an exception on, on this depending on the kind of campaign the storyteller is running. You know, I'm not sure how this shakes out in the 20th edition or the 20th anniversary edition, but in the second edition that I played, they had a source book called Elysium, which uh, was about playing elder characters. And in that, you could 
you could actually have a generation background high, higher than five if your if your storyteller was running that kind of chronicle. So you could you could have a, a generation lower than eighth generation under those rules. Next background is herd. Uh, this is a group of mortals from whom you can feed upon without fear. They're willing, usually mortals who are willing to let you feed from them for one reason or another. So a rating of one is three people, two is seven, three is 15, four is 30, and five is 60. Um, so one, you know, one of the things you have to do as a vampire is drink blood. You lose a blood point every night when you wake up. So having a herd uh, can greatly increase the survivability of your character because especially as a beginning character, one of the more dangerous things you do is go out hunting. And uh, if you have a herd, you don't so much have to worry about that, especially if you have a higher rating because you've got enough uh, people who will willingly give you their blood that you don't have to go take it by force or dominate people or whatever. Uh, next background is influence. So this is your ability to influence uh, political and social processes of the mortal world. Again, one to five, the, the higher, the more influential you are. Next background is your mentor. So this is your sire. And every vampire has a sire. But if you don't put points into the uh, background, then your sire is just nobody special. Um, your sire is not um, doesn't really have a high rank within the vampire community. However, if you put points in the mentor background, then your sire is more influential. Now, this uh, goes into uh, different um, ranks within the Camarilla, which is the vampire society. So, you know, I'm not going to go into all of these because a lot of these terms won't, won't mean anything to you. But for instance, uh, with a two in mentor, your sire is an elder and well-respected. An elder is usually a vampire that's a couple hundred years old or older. And then the highest, a uh, level five, is uh, your mentor is a Justicar, which is actually above a prince. Uh, level four, your mentor is the prince of the city. Justicars are even higher than the princes. And they're the ones, you know, if a prince screws up, the Justicars are the ones that come to deal with them. And they're usually quite old and quite powerful. Uh, next background is resources, and that's financial resources, money. So this is a really, a really cool one to have. Obviously, it's nice to have money. And I really like the way they handle this because it does not require accounting usually. So with a one resources, you have a small savings, you have an apartment, perhaps a motorcycle. If liquidated, you would have $1,000 in cash and you have an allowance of $500 a month. So, you know, you have a one resources, you've got $500 that you can spend every month. Two resources is middle class. You have an apartment or a condominium. If liquidated, you would have $8,000 in cash and you have an allowance of $1,200 a month. Resources three, you have a large savings. You own a house or at least have some equity. If liquidated, you would have $50,000 in cash and you have an allowance of $3,000 a month. Resources four, you're well off. You own a very large house or perhaps a dilapidated mansion. If liquidated, you would have 500,000 uh, in cash. 
and you have an allowance of 9000 a month. And with the resources of five, you are fantastically rich. You're easily a millionaire many times over. If liquidated, you would have at least $5 million in cash, and you have an allowance of thirty grand a month. Next is retainers. And retainers are mortals who are kind of like your servants. But a big thing that retainers do for you is they can be around during the day when you're asleep and vulnerable to protect you. And the rating in retainers is how many retainers you have from from one to five. Next up is status. So this is your status in the vampire world within the Camarilla. Uh, So with a one, you are known. You're a neonate, uh, which is kind of the, the lowest rank in the Camarilla at status three, you are an elder. Um, at status four, you are a member of the Primogen, which the Primogen are the council of elders that are below the prince in a city. Now, different cities, different princes will run things different ways. But kind of the standard is you have the prince who is the end-all, be-all vampire authority in the city. And then under the prince is the primogen, which the primogen are made up of the eldest vampire of each clan in the city. So, you know, you have a Ventru primogen, a Toreador primogen, and so on. So uh, with a four status, you are one of the primogen. And then with a five status, you you are the prince. So, you know, personally, as a storyteller, if I had a character wanting to put points in status, uh, beyond one point, which is a neonate, I would also require them to put appropriate points in generation as well, because um, you know you're you're probably not going to have an elder who's thirteenth generation, or a primogen, or a prince who's thirteenth generation. So, so I I would suggest, if not require, you know, especially if a character, if a player wanted to be an elder or a primogen or a prince, it's like, yeah, you're going to have to put points in uh, generation to to match that. So those are the the backgrounds in Vampire. Again, a lot of these are the same in all the games. You know, they all have contacts and allies and fame and influence and mentor resources. Those are all in all the games, but then some of these are specific to vampire, like the generation and herd and and so on. Another concept I thought I would talk a little bit about that, that I mentioned in an earlier episode in the series is the concept of the delabry, diablery. So we talked a little bit about generation. How many generations removed are you from from the first vampire? And and I re- realized when I was editing. Uh, the episode where I talked about generation that I, I mentioned how the vampire lore in this game is very steeped in Christian mythology and how, according to legend, the first vampire was Cain, as in Cain and Abel. But I mentioned that you could change that if you wanted. And, and I didn't elaborate on that. And, and I realized as I was editing that episode that that I probably should have. So just to elaborate on that a little bit, you know, this is all legend and myth, right? Cain being the first vampire. No one living, even among the vampires, even among the, the oldest of the vampires, none of them have ever seen or met Cain. In fact, none of them have seen or met any of the second generation vampires or even any of the third generation vampires. The third generation have, for the most part, been in torpor. They've been asleep for all of known history. 
So pretty much no vampire alive today has ever seen or talked to any of the first, second, or third generation vampires. So it would be very easy for you as a storyteller in your particular vampire game to say that, well, everybody thinks that Cain was the first vampire, but actually the first vampire was someone else. Again, this is also steeped in Christian mythology, but some don't believe that Cain was the first vampire. They believe that Lilith, Adam's first wife before Eve, was the first vampire. So even there, there's some disagreement. <laughs> Unfortunately, those are both from Christian mythology. But, you know, the first vampire could have easily been some figure from some other mythology or could have been some figure no one's ever heard of, which, which honestly would make more sense because Cain or whoever the first vampire was would have had all of the disciplines at 10, <laughs> which is all of the disciplines I told you about last week, as well as the disciplines from the other six of the 13 clans, which, which are even more vampiric powers. And among those, this person would have Office of level 10. Now, we only went up to level five Office but one of the higher level, higher than five powers of Office is the ability to erase your existence from everyone's memory and from any, you know, any text or anything like to erase all evidence that you ever existed. So whoever the first vampire was, whether it was Cain or someone else, has access to that ability. And one would think that they might have used that. So you know, in my mind, just the fact that so many people think that Cain was the first vampire probably means that Cain wasn't the first vampire if Cain was even a person that ever really existed, which he probably wasn't um, because it's myth. Um, it's fiction. So he probably never existed anyway. And, and besides that, uh, you know, the first vampire, whoever they were, has within their power the ability to make everyone on the planet throughout history forget them and, and to erase all evidence that they ever existed. And such a vampire, if they were still around, would would surely be super paranoid and, and would have done that. So, you know, I think the, the, the winning bet is on the first vampire was not Cain. It was on someone that no one's ever heard of before who's been erased from, from history so and prehistory. So, uh, yeah, it would be really easy for you to change who the vamp first vampire was or just say that nobody knows. And, and that's how I always approached it in my games was, you know, yeah, most people, they buy the whole myth that Kane was the first vampire. It's a, it's a nice story to tell. But, you know, the, the really old vampires that have been around like, you know, hundreds or thousands of years, they don't believe that because they know more, they know more of the, the kind of powers that this vampire would have and, and realize that, you know, whoever the first vampire was, chances are really, really good at no one has ever heard of them because they've erased themselves from memory. So, so yeah, you know, that's how I approached it. You know, if the player characters ever got to someone that really knew what was going on, they would tell them, yeah, you know, chances are really good it wasn't Kane and that's a myth, but uh, nobody really knows for sure. So anyway, let's get back to Diablery. So the idea, you know, with this game is this idea of generation that whoever the first vampire was, they were the most powerful vampire. And 
Then there was the second generation, which were the vampires that the first vampire made. And then there was the third generation, which were the vampires that the second generation made. And the third generation vampires would be on a power level of demigods or even beyond that. And then each generation after that got less and less powerful all the way down to 13th. Which, by the way, 13th isn't the lowest generation. There are actually 14th generation and 15th generation vampires. 15th is where it stops because by the 15th generation, the vampire blood has gotten so diluted that 15th generation vampires actually can't make new vampires. Their, their blood is too weak to uh, change someone into a vampire. So there are no generations beyond 15. Player characters start at 13 unless... They get the uh, generation background. Uh, if they max out the generation background to five, they can start out at eighth generation. However, there is a way for player characters to lower their generation during play, and that is called Diablery. This is seen as the greatest sin that a vampire can commit. This is seen as wrong and bad by any vampire in the Camarilla. And uh, if someone is known to have done this, the, the prince will call for their head. Something is called the blood hunt, where, you know, normally in vampire society, uh, you're not allowed to kill other vampires. The exception to that is if you make a new vampire in the time before that vampire is presented to the prince and accepted by the prince, when they're still a child, uh, their sire, the vampire who made them, can kill them and nobody cares. But once you're presented to the prince and you're accepted as part of vampire society, you know, other vampires aren't allowed to kill you. Uh, however, if you do something bad enough, like, for instance, commit diablery or break the masquerade really bad, the prince can call what's called a blood haunt on you, which basically is the prince saying, hey, this vampire needs to die. Anybody is allowed to kill them and then anyone can kill them. So what Diablery is, is when as a vampire, you drain another vampire. And not only do you drain all their blood, but then at that point, you you keep feeding on them and, and you basically eat their soul, for, for lack of a better way of putting it. And at that point, the, the vampire dies forever. And if the vampire was a lower generation than you are, then your generation goes down one as, as you've consumed their essence. So it is possible for player characters or other vampires to lower their generation by, by doing this. And this is called Diablery, where you feed upon a vampire who's lower generation than you and you kill them in that way and you gain their power and you basically eat what's left of their soul. As I said, in the Camarilla, this is seen as a, as a high crime, and it's a bit hard to get away from it because anyone with level two aspects that has the ability to see auras can see in your aura if you've committed diablery. Now, there is a whole system to this, and it involves uh, opposed willpower roles between you and the person you're trying to diablerize. So it is possible if you commit diablery and you just dominate those willpower roles, it is possible for you to do it without there being any signs in your aura. It, it kind of has to do with how much of that vampire's kind of spirit or soul survives the process because, uh, 
basically when you diabolize them, you make these opposed willpower rolls. And if you win the rolls well enough, then it means that you just kind of annihilated them and there's nothing left. However, if they win the, the rolls, or if you don't win well enough, then uh, it means that a little of them survives and stays with you and they kind of haunt you. <laughs> and that's what other vampires can see in your aura. So, so it is possible you could get away from with it. And then that, uh, uh, that thing in your aura that they can see does fade over time. It takes quite a while, like months or years usually, but, uh, it does it does fade eventually. So so there are ways you could get away from it. Occasionally, if someone really screws up, the prince will not only call a blood hunt, but will authorize whoever uh, kills the vampire that screwed up to diabolize them. Um, but that's fairly uncommon, and princes can get into trouble with higher ups in the the Camarilla, like the the Justicars, if they do that. So yeah, it's a pretty dangerous thing to do. Uh, and there can be serious, serious consequences for doing it, but but it is a path to power that the player characters can take if they want to. Another thing I wanted to talk a little bit about today is some of the, the ways that vampires can get injured. Um, I already mentioned last time that most forms of damage they can heal very easily by just spending blood points. Uh, exceptions to that are sunlight and fire, which do aggravated damage. And they are much more difficult to heal. I didn't really go into how that's done, but we'll just suffice it to say that healing aggravated damage takes multiple blood points per health level that you heal. Um, you also have to spend willpower to do it, and it takes longer. Um, you, you can't just do it instantly. You have to do it while you're sleeping during the day. So, so it's, it's, it's more costly and difficult to heal, and it takes longer. So yeah, sunlight and fire are do aggravated damage as well as uh, vampire claws from the protean discipline, as well as claws from werewolves and some other select things like like I'm sure there are certain things mages can do, certain spells or whatever that do aggravated damage and things like that. But other than sunlight or fire, the only sources of aggravated damage are supernatural in in nature. So those are more difficult to heal. And then, you know, you might be wondering about some other things from Vampire Legend, like garlic. You know, in this game, that's a myth. Garlic has no effect on vampires one way or another. The whole wooden stake to the heart thing does not kill a vampire. However, it paralyzes them. Um, so, you know, if you manage to drive a wooden stake through a vampire's heart, they are paralyzed and immobilized until it's removed. Um, but it doesn't kill them by itself. Okay, and now, finally, we are to the last thing I want to talk about as far as kind of the mechanical stuff of Vampire, and that is experience, both how you earn and how you spend experience. And as I mentioned in an earlier episode, there aren't levels in this game. You don't, quote, level up. Instead, you spend your experience that you earn to raise different traits. So first, let's go into how you earn experience in the game. So you earn experience um, kind of two different times. One is at the end of each chapter, and a chapter is a game session. So again, you know, in this game, they're coining new terms for things. 
to match, you know, where where we're getting inspiration for all this from from literature and drama. So, you know, we call a campaign a chronicle and we call a game session a chapter. So at the end of each chapter, at the end of each game session, you earn XP. And as a storyteller, you can do this differently. But what's suggested in the book is each chapter, each game session, you earn one to five XP. And you earn these XP for specific things. So one point is automatic. So every player gets one point of XP at the end of the game session just for being there and playing their character. You can gain one point for learning curve. So this is where the character has learned something from their experiences during that game session. And you ask the player to describe what their character learned, and then you decide if that's worth a point or not. Personally, as a storyteller, I also include here the player learning something. So they can get a point from learning curve for either their character learning something or or them as a player learning something, um, especially with new players. You know, they're often learning things about the game and how things work. And, and I'm, you know, I'll give them an XP for that. So you can get one XP from learning curve. You can get one XP from acting. Uh, the player role pe- played well. Um, not only entertainingly, but appropriately. So award for exceptional role-playing only, they say, and your standard should get increasingly higher. Now, here's here's a point where I do do things differently than what they suggest. They say, in most cases, only award this to the person who did the best role-playing in the group. And I used to do it that way. And I mean, it's it's fine. You know, it's not going to be the end of the world if you do it that way. However, it can sometimes lead to to bad feelings among the players. And, and it also, in my mind, it kind of can set up this idea of, of it being a competition, which, which I don't like. I, I see role-playing games as cooperative games, not competitive games. The, the players aren't competing with each other, and the players aren't competing with the GM. We're all playing cooperatively to have a good time and, and tell a cool story together. So I feel like only awarding this acting experience point to the person who role-played the best in the group goes counter to that. The other reason I don't like doing it that way is oftentimes in a group, you're just going to have someone who's just a really great role-player, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're not all equals. <laughs> I know we like to think that everybody's created equal, but that's obviously not true, right? I mean, it's... Anybody with eyes in their heads can see that we're not all equal. So not everyone at your table is going to be an equal role player. And, you know, you might have someone in your group who's an actor or a voice actor or or they're just really good at it and and they're on a whole nother level than everyone else. And so they're going to get in one more XP than every other player every single session you know, over the course of a chronicle, a long-running chronicle, their their character is going to be way ahead of everyone else just because in real life, they have this level of skill that no one else has. So in, in a group like that, where not everyone's on the same level, you know, acting or role-playing wise, it, it quickly becomes quite unfair as one person just always gets that XP point. So I, instead of awarding it to the best person... I just award it to anyone who I feel role-played well. And it's just as simple as that. And I really recommend that, that you do the same. Um, I don't really see any upside 
to just giving it to the person that you think role played the best. Another way I've seen people do it, and I've done it myself, I've tried myself, is is having the players vote for who did the best. Honestly, I think that's even worse than just the GM handing it out to who they think was best because then it really becomes a competition and kind of a popularity contest sometimes. So uh, yeah, my recommendation to you as a storyteller is don't limit yourself to just saying, oh, only one player can get this. Uh, Award it to anyone who you feel role-played well. And, you know, as I said, you know, your, your standards should, should slowly increase for this through the, through the course of the campaign or the chronicle, you know, as the, as the players get to know their characters more and as they have more experience role playing, they, they should get better at it. So, you know, what, what warranted an acting XP point in the first session may not be enough to earn them one in the 10th session. And also another thing I would recommend in addition to just, not limiting it to just one one character is grade each player based on where they're at and where they started right so you're you know if if you're playing with friends you're going to know this from the beginning if you're playing with new people you you know after you play a few sessions you're going to get a sense of where everyone is at as a role player where they are on that spectrum where they are on that scale of how quote good of a role player they are and, you know, I personally don't think it's really fair to hold everyone to one standard. As a GM or as a storyteller, what I want from my players, what I want from my group is, you know, I want you to try. That's all I ask. I, I, I don't ask everyone to be a professional voice actor or a professional actor. Um, I just ask that everyone try their best, right? And I ask that everyone try to over the course of the entire chronicle, not necessarily every single week, but over the long term, you know, I ask that everybody try to improve, try to up their game as much as they can. So, you know, when I'm looking at this acting XP, did this player role play well? And are they improving? I am not comparing them to the other players. I'm comparing them to themselves. Did they role play well for them? Right? So if I have a, a player who's a professional actor, you know, I'm going to have a higher standard for them to earn that acting XP than for a player who is really introverted and feels really awkward role playing. You know, that player, they make, if I see them making an effort, even if they don't do a great job, they're getting the XP because they're making the effort, right? I, I think you're with me here on this. You, you understand what I'm saying. So, so grade each player based on where they're at. Don't hold them, you know, all to the same standard and be generous. Um, I can tell you, I've had a lot of experience running these games and one to five XP per session is not much. You know, we'll get into the XP, like what things cost in a bit. Um, there are some things that are fairly cheap to raise with XP. Like, for instance, the abilities are fairly che- cheap to raise with XP, but everything is based on it's a multiplier of of the current rating. So for instance, it's a lot cheaper to raise something from one dot to two than it is to raise it from four to five. So if you're new to this game, you start out with new characters and you're given out, you know, five XP per game or three to five XP per game or whatever you per session, whatever you're doing, you know, it may at the in the very beginning, it may seem to you like, oh wow, you know, they're they're getting to raise something every every session. They're they're kind of powering up pretty quick if they're raising things that are cheap, like like abilities. But that's going to taper off really quickly 
because again, it, it's pretty cheap to get to raise something from one to two or from two to three. But, um, you know, raising it to four and five is, is quite a bit more expensive. And then the cost of things is directly proportionate to how much they boost your character's power. So the attributes are much more expensive to raise than the abilities. Um, your disciplines are really expensive to raise. So, you know, raising a discipline from three to four or from four to five is going to take numerous sessions worth of XP to do. So I will tell you, as someone who's had a lot of experience running these games, um, overall, the character progression in these games, if you follow the guidelines for what to hand XP out for and how much, is quite, quite slow. So if you follow these guidelines, you do not have to worry about your characters powering up too fast. And um, like I said, it's quite slow. And, and for a lot of people, it's too slow. So if that's you, what I recommend you do, and this is what I often did, is add some more categories that they can earn XP for. So, so right now we have five things they can earn XP for in a session. They're not going to get all five every session. You know, a good average is around three XP per session using this system. So, you know, you can add new things for them to get XP for if you want them to be able to earn more. All right, so they get one automatically. They get one potentially for learning curve. They get one potentially for acting, which is just, you know, role-playing well, um, appropriately and entertainingly. They can get a point for role-playing. So it's kind of confusing. They have one for acting and one for role-playing. The role-playing one is specifically for playing their nature and their demeanor well. So they get the point for acting for just role-playing in general well. Um, they get the role-playing XP specifically for role-playing their nature and their demeanor well. And then the final point is for heroism, which is definitely one they won't be getting every session. Vampires don't tend to be super heroic <laughs> in general, but this they get for putting themselves at risk for others, you know, such as suffering multiple aggravated wounds, fighting the werewolves long enough for the rest of the players to escape, things like that. So again, it's probably actually going to be rare that they get a point for heroism. And they point out here, there is a fine line between heroism and stupidity. As a storyteller, you need to know the difference and you reward heroism. You do not reward stupidity. So that's the end of each session. They can get one to five points. It's going to be rare. If you follow this, it's going to be rare that they ever get five points in a session. Um, it happens, but it will be rare. Most sessions, they'll get around three. And then also, you award XP. In addition to this, every session XP, they get XP at the end of a story. So the end of a story is, is kind of up to you as a storyteller. Um, the idea here is a chronicle, which is your total campaign, is made up of multiple stories. So this would be, you know, in DD terms, this would be a, a single adventure, a single storyline, right? Beginning, middle, end. So at the end of a story, at the end of that session, in addition to the one to five XP that we just went over, there are potentially three more XP they could get on top of those. So they can get one point for success. So the players succeeded in the overall mission or goal of the story. It doesn't have to be a complete success, but at least a marginal victory was achieved. They can get one point for danger. The character experienced great danger during the story and survived. 
and they can get one point for wisdom. The player and thus the character exhibited great wits or resourcefulness and came up with an idea that enabled the party to succeed. And yeah, they even suggest here uh, what I just suggested. If you want to award even more points so the characters develop more quickly, simply invent new categories in which you can make awards. They can even vary from story to story and can be based on the specific circumstances of that story. So let me give an example of that. Let's say that you are running a classic super political vampire chronicle. And maybe as part of this chronicle, kind of one of the ideas of this chronicle is the player characters start out as, you know, neonate nobodies that have just been embraced. They've just been presented to the prince. And the primogen, which again is is the elder from each clan in the city. So they're, you know, most cities, there'll be seven primogen. Uh, the primogens start trying to, invol- to involve the player characters in their various plots and schemes. So the player characters in this chronicle have the opportunity to get to know uh, the various primogen and help or hinder the various primogen as they choose, you know, be more or less cooperative with these primogen as they choose. So maybe in in this chronicle, you might say, Every time you get on the good side of one of the primogen and you convince this primogen that you're useful and, and whatnot, you gain an XP for that because that fits the, the theme of the Chronicle and what you're trying to do. So that's just one example of how you could have some kind of XP reward tied directly to the story that, that you want to tell. Another easy way, you know, if you want to give out more XP on the chapter basis at the end of each session, one easy way to do that that I've done before is for the role playing, which is for XP, which is for playing your nature and demeanor well, you could split that up into two. So you could offer one point for role playing the nature and a separate point for role playing the demeanor. So if they do both, they'd get two points there instead of one. So yeah, there's, you know, you can come up with all kinds of uh, reasons to award XP. Another thing I've done often in the past is is just occasionally award an XP for something cool that a player did or something cool that the that the group did that didn't necessarily fit any of these things. But every once in a while, a player or the group as a whole will just do something really cool, really amazing, really creative, or or come up with a really you know innovative solution to a to a problem that you didn't even think of. And I, I would often award the whole group an XP for, for something like that. Now, as I would suggest with any game, you know, if you're new to this system as a storyteller, I would suggest that you just run it by the book for a bit first, get a feel for it, get a feel for that leveling pace and, and you know, wait a few sessions, let them get past because... Uh, I'll tell you, and I I do this too as a player, something a lot of players will do uh, when they start playing a new character is those first few sessions. You know, it's fun to raise stuff, right? It's fun to increase stats on your character sheet. So a lot of times what you'll see happen in the beginning of a chronicle is in those first few sessions, you will see players raising things that are cheap. They'll be raising, you know, abilities that they have at like one or two dots. So, you know, wait to get past that. Wait till they start, you know, saving up for more expensive things. Uh, Wait for that point to kind of get a feel for what is this leveling pace like. 
and then decide, you know, does it feel about right to you? Does it feel kind of slow? Does it feel maybe kind of fast? I really doubt you're going to think it's too fast. But uh, if you do feel like it feels a little slow, you know, at that point, you can come up with some more reasons to, to award XP. And again, you could award more XP at the end of each chapter, which is at the end of each gaming session, or you could award more XP at the end of each story, or both, depending on how much you want to accelerate things. All right, so let's uh, let's go into how the the XP works as far as spending it. So you see here that, that by the book, you can in, earn anywhere from one to five XP for, per game session. You know, three is probably a good expectation for your average of what you'd earn each session. And then you can earn one to three at additional XP at the end of each story. So what does it cost to do things with the XP? So to get a new ability, which is a skill, a knowledge, or a talent, to get the first dot and one you don't have yet costs three points. To get a new discipline, the first dot that you don't have costs 10 points. So right there you, you see, right? Even if you get the maximum of five XP at the end of a session, which will rarely happen, but is not going to happen every session unless you're running some some crazy campaign where where they can be heroic every single session. But even if, even if they earn the max five, it would take them two sessions worth of XP to be able to get the first dot in the new discipline because that costs 10. More likely, it's going to take four sessions because like I said, a, a good average, if you run it by the book, is they'll earn three per session. So to earn 10 XP would take them four sessions just to get one dot in a brand new discipline. To raise willpower, it's just the current rating. So if they have a willpower of five, they want to raise it to six, it costs five XP. To raise humanity, it's current rating times two. So if they have a humanity of six and they want to raise it to seven, it costs 12 XP. To raise a virtue, which is conscience, self-control, and courage, it costs current rating times two. To raise an ability that they already have at least a dot in is current rating times two. So, you know, let's say an ability like uh, firearms. If you got a one in firearms, raising it to two costs you two points because it's current rating times two. If you have a two to raise it to three costs four points and so on. So you see, you know, the abilities are pretty cheap. So, you know, player gets three XP on that first game session. They can raise an ability they have at one to two with, with two XP. Raising an attribute, on the other hand, is current rating times four. So that's, you know, your strength, your dexterity, your intelligence, things like that. It's current rating times four. So if you have a dexterity of two and you want to raise it to three, it's going to cost you eight XP. So again, eight XP, you're talking uh, probably four sessions or no, three sessions uh, of saving XP to, to be able to do that. Clan disciplines are current rating times five and other disciplines, non-clan disciplines, are current rating times seven. So you can see raising a clan discipline from three to four would cost you 15 XP. Raising a clan discipline from four to five would cost you 20 XP. Again, averaging three per session. It's going to take a while. And that's if you're saving all your XP for that, not spending it for other things. Non-clan discipline Raising from three to four would cost you 21 XP. Raising from four to five would cost you 28. So I think you can see here from uh, how much XP you get per session and what things cost. 
I think you can see, you know, what I was saying, you know, at the very beginning, you might see them raising things fairly quickly as they're raising, you know, abilities that they have one or two. But uh, once they're raising things that are three or higher, especially when you're talking about disciplines and ability or attributes, uh, those are pretty expensive. I mean, it's going to take probably months worth of sessions to, to raise something like that. So, so it is, it is quite slow. So, like I said, I, I do recommend if you're new that you start out, just run it by the book and get a feel for it to see what you think, you know, is it, you know, how is it for you? Um, Cause every, every storyteller is going to have their own kind of what they feel is the sweet spot for how quickly the characters advance, but chances are good. You're going to find it's a little slow for your taste, if anything, and you, you may want to give more XP. But if you do, you know, you can come up with ways to do that. Like, like I've said before in the past, when it comes to XP in games, you know, think about what do you want to reward the players for? What do you want to see more of in the game? And award XP for that. Um, use that carrot to reward behavior that you see, that you like, that you want to see more of, and to encourage behavior that you're not seeing that you want to see more of. For instance, in our mage game uh, that Craig is running, he gives us XP for taking notes. So we have a shared Google document that we all in the group have, have access to. And during the session, everyone that adds notes to that about what's going on, so we can all remember later, uh, gets an XP for that. And <laughs> it's an easy way to get XP, so we all make a point to take some notes every session, so everyone gets that taking notes XP point every session. you know. And, and I can pretty much promise you that if Craig was not awarding an XP for that, that I'm sure some of us would take notes, like I would. I'm going to take notes regardless. That's just how I am. But some of us would not probably be taking notes every session if there weren't XP involved. But because he awards XP, every single one of us takes notes every single session. And it works like a charm. So yeah, if you're wanting to increase that, that power-up pace and you're trying to think of things to award XP for, think about you know what, what do you want to see more of that you're not seeing or that you're not seeing a lot. What are things that you are seeing that you want to reward and encourage more of? Things like that and, and award XP for those things. You know, there, there can also be one-off XP rewards. For instance, you know, if someone wants to make a sketch of their character or something like that, you could just give XP for, for something like that. And we've done it. I, or I've done it. <laughs> I've done it. I, I've said the things and you've done it. You've listened to the things. And I have finally reached, or I finally covered the things that I wanted to talk about as far as Vampire the Masquerade, the game and the system. And yeah, hopefully after this, hopefully now you you understand why I like this game so much. I love the nature and demeanor and the fun of role-playing a character whose nature and demeanor are different. I love that you know, you get X or you get willpower points for playing your nature. I love that you get XP for playing your nature and demeanor. I love the whole humanity thing and the hierarchy of sins and the degeneration of your humanity and how unlike in, in a lot of games, you know, not only do you just always grow more powerful, but there, there's a chance that, that you could 
um, devolve in, in the terms of your humanity. And, you know, if you let that go far enough, you could even lose your character. So it's not just the threat of your character getting killed in some way. There's also the threat of you could lose all your humanity and, and lose your character that way. And yeah, I think that's, it's super cool. And this game is really set up to help the players really get deep into character and, and really role play. And, and it really focuses on that and, and rewards that. And it's also set up to help a storyteller, to help a GM uh, run a game like that and run a game that focuses on that and that rewards that and encourages that. And yeah, I've just learned so much about how to be a good GM from this game and from White Wolf's approach. And yeah, it's it's really great stuff. Um, I, I highly recommend that you check it out. All right, that's going to wrap it up for episode 296 of Game Master's Journey. Thank you so much for joining me again. And uh, I hope that you have enjoyed this discussion of Vampire as much as I have enjoyed doing it. Let me know if you want to hear some more vampire stuff. I've pretty much covered the the basics of the system and, and a good overall of the system. One idea I had for another topic I, I could discuss as far as vampire is that I mentioned the Camarilla, which is the society of, of the vampires, is actually only one of such societies in the game. There's also the Sabat and the Inkanu. So I think I could probably fill an episode talking about those three factions, the Camarilla, the Sabat, and the Inkanu, and what they're each like and, and how they're different. And uh, if that's something that you'd be interested in, let me know and I can do that. If you would like to contact me, you can email me at gamemastersjourney at gmail.com. You can call my voicemail at 951-GMJLAX1. That's 951-465-5391. And you can join our community on Discord. You can find links to all these things in the show notes at lexstarwalker.com slash GMJ. I thank you again for your time and attention today. And please let me know if you would like to hear about the various vampire factions and societies. I'd be happy to go over that. Or if there's anything else about this game you'd, you'd like to know more about, let me know. I hope that you have a chance to play your favorite RPG this week. I hope you have a chance to run an RPG. I'll be back soon with another episode of Game Master's Journey. Until then... Game on. This has been a Starwalker Studios production, your source for quality gaming and hobby podcasts. This episode's music, courtesy of Cloudwalker, Transboy, Renfield, Stanko, and Ish. See the show notes for more details at starwalkerstudios.com slash Game Master's Journey. Journey.